Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be reading from verse 31. The title of the message this morning is The Final Judgment. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, we're going to read through to the end of the chapter in verse 46. Let's read God's Word together carefully with one another. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, the awesomeness of the day of final judgment before us in your word is... It's got such gravity to it. And Holy Spirit, I pray You would bring home the truth of this final judgment that has yet to happen, but will certainly happen. Bring it home with all of the fullness of truth into our hearts. Transform us today by Your living Word. Almighty God, save any who have not trusted in Christ. Lord, for all who have, Lord, bring comfort and hope 
and peace and eternal perspective and urgency. Jesus, be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I I was looking at this passage this past week, and as I was reading through it again and again, I I couldn't help but just weep and weep again at at just the, the awesomeness of this section of Scripture that's in front of us today. And I can't help but sense that the Holy Spirit is going to really minister grace into all of our hearts. I was thinking of the rainstorm yesterday afternoon that was strong and steady I couldn't help but just go outside of my house and just look out on the front porch at it and just, I just kept praying, Lord, send the rain, send the rain, send the rain. And His truth revives, His truth restores, His Word restores and renews our very souls. And so as we look at God's Word together, I was looking at this in terms of the, the contrast, and I saw four contrasts in this passage I want to highlight to you. Contrast number one is humble servant and glorious king. Humble servant, glorious king. Secondly, throne of grace and judgment. Thirdly, saved and unsaved. And fourthly, eternal punishment and eternal life. So let's look at this first contrast. Humble servant and glorious king, beginning in verse 31. Remember the context here is Jesus on the Mount of Olives, right outside of the city of Jerusalem, on the eastern side, right outside the eastern gate, is up on the ridge, looking down on the Temple Mount. And he's about just a few days away here from dying on the cross, for our sins, and he declares this truth in the midst of his dying week. And he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It affects me greatly when I read that verse 31. And see that Jesus is saying these very words on the week that he's dying. He's about ready to enter into the greatest humiliation any human being has ever faced. And he's about to do that for our sins. He's about to die as the suffering servant, the Messiah, in great love for sinners. And he's about to be spit upon and mocked and he knows it's coming and He knows his disciples are going to be sent a spin with being perplexed at what's taking place because they were expecting him to establish in great power and might his throne right here in this moment. And Jesus here is talking to his disciples. He's talking to them directly. And he's talking about them right on the verge of his humiliation and death. Of his glorious return. An eternal reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, in verse 34, Jesus actually says, Then the King will say to those on the right, it's said here that Jesus is 
description, his self-description of the king. This here is the only place where Jesus self-describes himself as the king. His favorite title is here in verse 31, the son of man. And the Son of Man, it's a, it's a contrast taken from Daniel chapter 7 of that beautiful title of the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do and what he was going to establish. He was going to be both a humble servant as well as a glorious king. He's going to be the one whose reign lasts forever. He's going to be the one who, as it's prophesied about in Second Samuel 7, is going to continue on the line of King David forever and ever. And so it is so. This is described typically as the the parable of the sheep and the goats, but this section here really isn't a parable. It's actually a prophecy of Jesus. He's describing what's going to happen on the final day of judgment. And it's, it's an awesome passage. It's a passage we should read through carefully and slowly. And it's a passage that we should keep in front of us, brothers and sisters, as we live out our daily lives, I've been so blessed by so many of you responding to the messages of late, just talking about how you're just wanting to go further into the Olivet Discourse and your personal study and your devotions. I'm just, I admire you for that, brothers and sisters. Just your heart for the Word, the good Bereans that you are, searching out the Scriptures and mining out all of the gems that are there. And there are so many more gems in these sections that we can hit in just a single sermon. And so mine away and enjoy the gold and the precious gems that you'll find as you enter into personal Bible study. And ladies, enjoy the Bible study through the book of Ephesians as you're going through it. Jesus talks here about His glorious return right before the cross. And it's so glorious that he talks about that there's going to be this entourage with him, this heavenly entourage. These angels are going to be coming with him. And we, of course, seen Jesus speak about this in Matthew chapter 24, where the angels, once again in Scripture, are seen. One of the things that they do of many in terms of being servants of the Lord is that they are the great harvesters at the end of the age. And these harvesters are coming back like an entourage. It's like the President of the United States pulling up in front of out of our church service this morning. There wouldn't be just one limo. There, he's, he's coming with a massive amount of secret service. And he's coming with all kinds of glory and circumstance and pomp around him. This is the image of Jesus when he comes back and the trumpet blast sounds. He's coming back with great power and great glory. And it's going to be so awesome, brothers and sisters. It's going to strike terror into the hearts of the nations. And they're going to mourn, Matthew 24 says. But it's also going to bring great joy and delight to all of us who, during this great tribulation, feel like we're barely hanging on by a thread, but when our Savior comes, He's here describing, I'm coming in glory, I'm coming in power, and I'm coming for you. Brothers and sisters, the angels will be a part of what's spoken of here in verse 32. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. The angels are going to come, and as we looked at from 1 Thessalonians 4, the angels are actually in Matthew 24 going to lay hold of God's elect from the four winds. And as the trumpet blast sounds, the the dead in Christ are going to rise first. But then we who are left will also arise to meet with the Lord in the air upon His glorious return on the day of judgment. 
And angels also, we see in the parable, the wheat and the tares are, are those who harvest and separate the wheat from the tares. They are involved with gathering God's elect, His saved, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they're also involved in gathering the tares so that they can be gathered in bundles and burned. The truths that we see in Matthew chapter 25 here and the awesomeness of the, the, the awesome day of God's judgment are, are seen throughout the rest of the scriptures. And it's a good thing to focus on the end. It's a good thing to focus on a good biblical, healthy eschatology or the doctrine of the end things. This doctrine of eschatology, as we've looked out throughout the Olivet Discourse, is meant to be the crown of our theology. It's meant to be something that we look into and Biblical eschatology, brothers and sisters, is more concerned not with the whens, asking, answering the question of when Jesus is coming. The question in biblical eschatology that's answered with a, just a pronounced exclamation point is, it's about the who. Who's gonna be standing? On the final day, who's going to be returning to gather his church? Who's going to come triumphant and glorious? And that is what is meant to preoccupy the church's mind in these last days is that who? It's Jesus who's coming. It's Jesus who gets the last word. It's Jesus who comes back with great salvation, but also with great vengeance to bring justice upon the nations. And brothers and sisters, both of these things should bring our hearts hope. Remembering who gives our lives focus. A biblical eschatology gives a Christian focus that he or she otherwise would lack. It also gives us direction. It gives us comfort in the present. And it gives us hope in our hearts for the future. Remembering who Jesus coming back can infuse your life with renewed focus and direction this morning. It can minister comfort to the broken and the weary and distressed. It can minister fresh hope to you this morning that this world, when it finally comes to an end, Jesus is going to be, as it says here in verse 31, sitting on his glorious throne as he is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. He reigns. Jesus rules and reigns and so he will forever and ever. I was uh, thinking this past week as my wife actually sent me this illustration and I think it's applicable uh, to this section of scripture. And the, the section of this article reads, focus on the road, not the wall. Listen carefully. Many racing experts consider Mario Andretti to be the most successful and versatile racing driver of all time. During his career, Andretti won the Indianapolis 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championship, and the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. He is one of only two drivers in history to win races in Formula One, IndyCar, World Sports Car Championship, and NASCAR. 
During an interview with Success Magazine, Andretti was asked for his number one tip for success in race car driving. He said, don't look at the wall. Your car goes where your eyes go. When young drivers are starting to race, this is one of the most critical lessons that they learn. When you're driving at 200 miles per hour, you need to focus on the road in front of you. If you look at the wall, then you'll end up hitting it. The same could be said for our lives. Brothers and sisters, may we as Christians have a healthy biblical eschatology that focuses on who is going to be coming back for us gloriously. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus Christ because He is the way. He is the road. And we've got millions of circumstances right now occupying our mind, flying past us at 200 miles an hour and tempting us to look to the right or to the left. But we are called as God's sheep to focus on Christ, to focus on the way. And by focusing on the road, brothers and sisters... There is focus, there is direction, there is comfort, there is hope. And we will stay on the road all the way to the end of the race. So let us focus on Christ and not the wall and not the flashing circumstances of our lives that tempt us to look away from Christ and to disorient us. Whenever I'm disoriented in my life, it's because I'm not looking at Christ the way I should be. Whenever I'm feeling weary or downcast, so often it's not hard to diagnose the reason why. It's because I've been focusing on other things rather than on Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us focus on the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, focus on the road and we will continue in the race and we continue well, we will. So the humble servant and glorious king is coming back. Let us keep our eyes upon him. Contrast number two, the throne of grace and the throne of judgment. We see here in verse 31, the angels are going to come with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. We, we see Christ as king in this section of scripture. We also see Christ as judge. And we see this in reference to his glorious throne. The throne is where verdicts of judgment are given by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the contrast is seen here throughout the rest of this prophecy that there are those who are going to be separated to Jesus' right, and there are going to be those who are going to be separated to His left. Those separated, the sheep to the right, are those who encounter His favor. They are His favored ones by grace, through faith in Christ. Those who, by the mercy and grace of God, have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, and who have followed Him and who have served Him during their lives, they're going to be gathered together on the day of judgment. And on the right hand, it represents that For them, this great judgment throne, for the believer, this is awesome, is a throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's not just for the future day of judgment. That's right now. The curtain has been torn in two. The, that which had divided us from being able to enter into the Holy of Holies through Christ's humiliation and death, that dividing wall has been brought down and we now have access to approach the throne of grace, not with terror, but brothers and sisters, our lives as Christians are to be marked with confidence. Confidence to go before the Lord in prayer. Confidence to cast now all your burdens on Him. Confidence to enter and draw near to the throne of grace. All because this glorious throne for God's precious people has been transformed from a throne of judgment to a throne of grace. For us, we, brothers and sisters, and let us remember this, it's not that justice toward our sins has been ignored. Justice for our sins has been satisfied. Justice for our sins has been satisfied by the suffering servant who a couple days from now is about to die on the cross for our sins and bleed out and atone for all the filth and wickedness of our lives and everything that we had done. He's about ready to bring the far away ones near by the blood of Christ, as Ephesians 2, 12 talks about it. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of grace is glorious. It has transformed the throne of justice from the great judge into the throne of grace. And for us now, and I pray for this, brothers and sisters, I pray for this for all of us who have genuinely trusted in Christ Jesus. Draw near to Him in confidence. Oh, dear brother, dear sister who's troubled, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because there is one who has made satisfaction on your behalf. There is one who has received the justice of Almighty God in your place, and that is Jesus Christ, the glorious King, sitting on His throne, raised from the dead. Oh, friends, but this glorious throne is also not just a throne of grace, but simultaneously a throne of terrible judgment and wrath for the unrepentant and those who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and will not submit their lives to Him. Hebrews 10.31 describes God's throne in this way. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If we do not have Christ's perfect righteousness clothing us by grace through faith and justification. If we do not believe in Christ, we go before this glorious throne naked, with no advocate, with no righteousness, but only our sin before His holiness. And brothers and sisters, it indeed is a terrible thing. It is a fearful thing, the ESV says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, brothers and sisters, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, be amazed that this throne of judgment is a throne of God's grace for you that you can come to without fear, but rather with confidence. And with confidence, draw near. With assurance that Christ is yours. 
and that you are his child, go before the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and grace to find him in your time of need this morning. And remember that on the day of judgment, there will be nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear on the day of judgment for you or for me if we have turned in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and have believed on His great sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Let us praise Him in our worship as both humble servant and glorious King and also this, righteous and holy judge. Let us praise God for all of His attributes. Christ community. Let us praise Him for His mercy and let us praise Him for His lavish grace. But let us also praise Him for His holiness. Let us praise Him for His exact justice. Let us praise Him for His wrath. Because all of this is worthy to be praised and is good. J.I. Packer writes a quote in relation to how challenging it can be for us sometimes to praise God for His justice and praise Him for His wrath. It's, It's sometimes hard for Christians to do so. And he writes this. I hope this is helpful for you. In the book of Revelation, the martyrs cry, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And when, finally, Babylon, emblem of the world's pride, greed, callousness, and cruelty, is overthrown, saints and angels join in singing, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever. And ever. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. Packer says this What we are being shown here is that when Christians get to heaven with their sanctification complete and their minds fully conformed to the mind of Christ as the angels' minds are, they will forever rejoice not only in the mercies by which God has glorified Himself in their own lives, but also in the judgments, the judgments by which He vindicates Himself against those who defy Him. Christians sometimes find this hard to believe because being at present imperfectly sanctified sinners themselves, they have so much fellow feeling for other sinners. And that's a good thing. And as yet, so little sense of how God is glorified in His judgments. But there can be no doubt that learning to praise God properly for His judgments, no less than for His mercies, is something that all the saints have to look forward to. As part of God's schooling of them in the life of holiness. Brothers and sisters, one thing we can be confident of and sure of is this, and this has been helpful for me through the years, 
we are not more compassionate than God is. And as Genesis 18 says, the judge of all the earth will do right. We can trust the Lord that His judgments are righteous. And that right now, the idea of a throne of judgment and a throne of wrath and a throne whereby sentences of eternal damnation, which this passage talks about, are rendered that God is good and righteous and worthy to be worshipped and praised throughout all of eternity for that justice and for that wrath. And for those of you who just have a hard time with that right now, I understand. We in this fallen world don't understand the gravity of sin the depths of its wickedness, and we don't also understand the holiness of God. And so therefore, the idea of God's justice being so severe as it is in this passage is a hard thing for us to fully contemplate. But as we grow as Christians, I believe we will learn more and more to praise Him for all of His attributes, the things that are easy for us to praise Him for and also the truths about God that are just a mystery to us and hard. It's not that we don't want to praise Him for, it's just hard for us to do. We just, we lack understanding. And how could we not? How kind of God that He remembers that we are dust. But His ways are righteous and He is a just judge as well as a gracious and merciful judge. And I pray that that quote and this point is helpful. Let us praise God for being a God of perfect justice. And let us praise God for being a God of lavish, lavish grace. And is His grace not lavish, brothers and sisters? Don't you thank the Lord for all that He has done? The third The third point would be saved and unsaved. Saved and unsaved. You see this here that in verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. So this is, this is a judgment that is, is more expansive than even the two parables before this where, where believers or professing believers are judged. This is the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment of all the nations before the Lord as he sits on his glorious throne. And we see the Lord saying in verse 32 that he's going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And underneath of this point of saved and unsaved, there's three phrases that kind of accent the distinction between saved and unsaved. The first is sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. These animals are so similar and yet they are so different. Both sheep and goats hail from the same subfamily, Caprone, but they diverge at the genus level and arrive at being distinct species. Sheep have 54 chromosomes. Goats have 60 chromosomes. Sheep are grazers, whereas goats are browsers wandering to and fro 
Sheep have woolly coats. Goats have hair. And one of the other distinctions that, as I was studying this passage, really stood out to me, and it's applicable to this parable in this moment, is, listen to this carefully, sheep have a very strong flocking instinct. And they become agitated when separated from their posse, one scientist says. They become agitated when separated from their posse. May we, like good sheep, delight and have that strong flocking instinct to gather with the assembled congregation and gather together as the visible church. And let us also see it as a a wonderful mark of holiness and saving grace in our lives when we become agitated in our souls whenever we're separated for a little bit of a period of time from our posse. And I want to thank you, brothers and sisters, for being such a glorious church to be a part of, because I indeed feel this when I'm away from you for any period of time, whether it be vacation or such. I I just, I feel like I miss you and I long to be with you again and I can't wait to worship with and have fellowship with the flock that I have the honor of being a part of and the honor of being an under-shepherd over. I'm so grateful to be your pastor, but I'm even more grateful to be a fellow Christian in your midst as we graze the word of the Lord together and we are fed by the green pastures and led beside the still waters of our good shepherd and to follow his voice and no other. Let us pray that we continue to do so and let us have this strong flocking instinct. One of the things about the goats is that they're actually more independent in their nature and they they don't have the same kind of flocking instinct. They're more isolated, they're on their own and their lives are more lived out independently rather than gathering together. And I just was so moved by that in relation to this passage and where Jesus talks about the sheep and the flock and the heart of the sheep to care for one another and love one another practically as this passage gets into. And I'm really affected by that, and I'll save that for just a few moments from now. But the, the, the independent nature of the goats and the flocking instinct of the sheep and Oh, brothers and sisters, I was, I was really moved by this. And I'm moved by th- this great separation that takes place, that where, where there is a separation to the right for the sheep and to the left for the goats. I'm, I'm affected by God's grace in our lives. In verse 33, he's going to place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father. And underneath the sheep goats, I have this distinction as well. Blessed, cursed. Rather a sheep or a goat, rather blessed or cursed. This is the distinction between all human beings. And we fall into one of these two categories. And it all is based on how we treat Jesus and how we receive Him. This blessed and cursed description that He says to the sheep on His right He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, I marvel at this phrase that this kingdom has been prepared from before the foundation of the world. This, ladies, you'll remember this from Ephesians chapter 1, that we have as Christians been, as God's elect, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. 
God's love for you preceded your birth. In Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord says to Jeremiah, before you were in your mother's womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see that we have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We see that same working of God's grace here in this description that this is inheritance. There's an inheritance that Scripture says can never perish, spoil, or fade that is awaiting us. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be awesome. It's, it's an inheritance. So brothers and sisters, make note of this, because this is important in this text as well. It's a gift. An inheritance is a gift. It's not something you earn. So this inheritance is a gift, a free gift of grace that is given to God's children, to his sheep. And he makes the point, Jesus does, to say that you are blessed By my Father. We see once again that it's not only Jesus dying for us who loves us, but it's the Father who deeply loves us in sending His own Son to die for sinners like us. Oh, brothers and sisters, delight in the love of God in all three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, you're blessed by my Father. Oh, let that sink in and let it minister to you, dear saint. And it says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are words which we have not yet heard from the Lord, but we will. Inherit the kingdom. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The only thing that you can think of in a moment like this, where you're thinking of the distinction... is how awesome is this kingdom going to be when God himself has been preparing it from before the foundation of the world. And it's like, are you excited about heaven? God is so excited for you to arrive there so that all that he has prepared, he can just unveil it and you can rejoice to walk in and hear, come, come. This has been prepared for you. And long before you were ever born, when I knew you and I loved you, I had you in mind when I prepared all this lavishly for you. We tend to like shows like on HGTV where there are the great unveilings of houses that have been completely renovated and decorated. And the great preparation takes place and typically the people are taken away on a little trip or something to hide them from being able to see the finished product until it's time. This is kind of the anticipation we're meant to have, brothers and sisters, in relation to the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade that is kept in heaven for you, God's Word says. We are to long for it. We are to anticipate it. We are to see ourselves as blessed who are going to receive this on the final day of judgment. And I pray that this stirs your excitement for heaven, those of you who have trusted in Christ. And turn from your sins. You are indeed blessed by the Father. And receive that blessing. Let it fuel your assurance of salvation. Let it fuel your confidence. All you who have fled to Jesus. But there's also those who are cursed. And you see Jesus. He he says this to them when they gather. He says, then you will say, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Here's the other distinction. You're either blessed or you're cursed. And that's seen here. You're cursed. And there's something also prepared for them. 
into the eternal fire prepared. And it's interesting here, the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels and unbelievers who reject Christ and will not receive him and his grace. They go to what was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's interesting the language that heaven and the kingdom of heaven was prepared directly for God's people. And so you see just the personal, intentional love of God, and you see hell in this sense of just, oh, we, we rebelled against the great king, but, but, but the Lord, he, he, he exacts justice and he does punish because he's holy and just, but you, you get the, the sense in here that, that hell, it was prepared for the devil and his angels, but, oh, you see a, a, a distinction there, even in the heart of God, that with, it's sort of like from all the fullness of his love and grace, he prepares the kingdom of heaven for his elect and for his loved, his chosen ones, his people, his children, his bride, and he's just, with all of the intentional personal force, it's, it's lavished on us when it comes to the damned. There's almost an acknowledgement that this was prepared for the devil and his angels. And I was not willing that any would perish, but all that would come to know eternal life. That was my desirous will. But I am a just and holy God, and by my will of decree, you have rejected my son. And you will depart from me. I never knew you. And you will go into the eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Brothers and sisters, Let us take stock of this and be sobered by these realities. Are you amongst the blessed who have received Jesus or amongst the cursed who have rejected him? And the third distinction is the evidence of saving faith versus the evidence of unbelief. Evidence of saving faith or evidence of unbelief underneath of the heading of the distinction of saved and unsaved. We see here that Jesus, when he pronounces this verdict of come, you who are blessed. It's the reaction of the saints and the sheep is so interesting, isn't it? For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and gave you drink. Look at these hungry, thirsty. It's, it's, it's these very simple acts of love. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I, there's hospitality here. There's I was naked and you clothed me. This is talking about poverty that is being alleviated here by God's people to God's people and also overflowing into the world. You see this heart of God's people. You see Jesus saying, I was in prison and you came to me. And the the saints are, when did we ever do that? I, I don't, they don't recall. It's almost... It's just an interesting dynamic of the saints at judgment that, and I think this ought to be an encouragement to us, we don't know all of the good that we do, brothers and sisters. And I think it's an evidence of humility that it's because of salvation that we labor to not know, let our left hand know what our right hand's doing. And there's a tally coming up on the day of judgment. God has not forgotten, Scripture says, even a cup of cold water that's been given in his name to one of his little ones. And you're going to be rewarded. And so am I. This lavish God of grace could come into this kingdom. And I've got rewards to lavish on you about stuff you've forgotten that you did years ago. 
oh, brothers and sisters, let us be motivated with just fresh love for God, that he's this kind of God of grace, and what an awesome Savior the Lord Jesus is, to be such a wonderful rewarder to those who are earnestly seeking after him. This this description here of the works that the saints do, it's also an encouragement to us, and this encourages my heart. We tend to think of big things for God in a way that Scripture doesn't classify it. Big things for God here by Jesus on the day of judgment are simple things, attainable by all of us, regardless of gifts or our abilities. We can give a cup of cold water. We can give some food. We can go visit somebody in prison. We can welcome the poor into our home. We can do these things. And Jesus is saying to his people that when you did these things unto the least of these, you did them unto me. You say, how did we do that to you? You have to remember that this is where the precious doctrine of our union with Christ through faith comes in. Jesus Christ is one with his people. So when you give a cup of cold water in his name to one of his little ones, you do it directly to him. And you see this when Saul is converted and Jesus knocks him off his horse. And he says what? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He so identifies with us that when he dies on the cross, he becomes our sin bearer and all of our sin and guilt gets heaped upon him. And God, the Father, pours out all this justice and righteous and holy wrath that we would have endured all throughout eternity in hell, brothers and sisters. It gets poured out on Jesus instead of us. And he looks and he so identifies with it. He says, your sins are forgiven you. And when you do a good work in my name to one of these little ones, you did it directly unto me. There's such an identification with his precious little ones. He calls them his little ones, this term of affection. And that's how he sees his precious children, church. That's how he sees you. He sees all your needs. He sees your areas where you are in great need. Financially, he sees all the areas where you are feeling poor, naked, broken, as a stranger, hungry, thirsty. And Jesus always makes sure to take care of all of our needs. And he does that through his church, the body of Christ. And may we be a church overflowing with good works. These good works, it's important to know this. this, If you just read this passage in isolation, it can almost seem like works righteousness or that you're saved through your works. No, brothers and sisters, Jesus is talking here as he does in Revelation chapter 20 when it says in Revelation 20 that we will be judged when the books are opened, we will be judged according to our works. It's so interesting that Jesus doesn't say here, hey, come, Come and enjoy this kingdom prepared for you because you trusted in Jesus, you trusted in me, and you repented of your sins. He goes to the evidence of that saving faith and highlights to all of you and to me, this is where the genuineness of your saving faith was proven 
through the small deeds that were actually great deeds. You labored long thinking that you were laboring in vain. And I'm telling you, you are not laboring in vain. You haven't labored in vain. Receive your reward. In Christ Community Church, I thought of you with this section. Numerous times over the last week, I was talking with Shannon. I I love this church. This church is so precious to me. And I love your heart that wants to just do things for Jesus. And may we, as we go forward from here, as we aspire to do great things for God, as we should, let us remember that the great things are looking out for the least of these and doing all we can to minister unto their practical needs in the name of Christ. Because when we do these things unto them, we actually are doing it to Jesus. And take heart because the good works abound. And that is in contrast to unbelievers who as they gather, they're, 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 they're surprised. God, where, where didn't we do this? Where didn't we do it? He uses the same criteria. Where is the evidence for whether or not you did anything unto me? And he goes to works. And the sobering thing, and is this amongst all the goats, amongst all of them, there is not one good work that was done unto Jesus and acceptable before Him. Not one. An unbeliever, and you see this in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing to please me unless you trust in Jesus Christ and unless you're saved and you receive a new heart, you're born again and then you, your entire life begins to orient around doing things for the glory of God. Listen, unbelievers do a lot of wonderful things for society. They do a lot of good. And, and there's value in that. But an unbeliever never once does one thing that Christ might be praised. They might do a lot of good works and give to charities and give back. And they're doing that because it, it makes them feel good. And it, But they don't ever do it that God might be praised, that Christ might be glorified. And here at the great day of judgment, the heart behind the works is fully exposed. And Jesus says, you didn't do anything for me. And unbeliever, listen, your good works are not going to get you into heaven. I say that with all the love in my heart towards you because I want you to turn to Christ and receive Him as your Lord and Savior so that you can join us in this glorious march toward heaven and do good works in His name. Good is not good enough, unbeliever. You see here that when you're before the light of God's holiness and you are before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to say... And the unbelievers ask, when didn't we do these things? Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. There are these sins of omission. There is this great lack of righteousness that the righteous have. And it's not because we're better people. It's only by grace. But we have those works because the Lord has given us a new heart and He's transformed us and we're born again. And now there's the fruit of the Spirit abounding more and more in our life and we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ through sanctification. And our life is like a snowball going downhill like an avalanche of good works that increase all the way to heaven all because of what Jesus did. And you know what? 
We're not even aware of all we're doing. Unbelievers. And you see this today with the lost. You ask, and when, when, I'm, in a, when I'm evangelizing people, and when I'm often talking to them, you'll hear them, they just have no sense that when they stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, that there's going to be something that's lacking. They think they're going to stand. They're not. Jesus is saying they're not. And this is a great warning to all of us in this passage that anybody here who's just saying, I don't need this Jesus stuff and I don't really need church like my mom and dad do. And I don't need, listen, if you don't have Christ and if you do not repent of your sins and trust in him, you've got nothing. You're going before this great white throne judgment naked and you will experience what Hebrews says. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I, I want to say this again, not all fear is bad fear. There's this idea out there that if I get saved because I was so in awe of God's holiness and wrath and justice that I fled in fear to underneath of the shadow of the cross to be saved, that somehow being motivated by fear to do that was wrong. You are right to fear God. Unbeliever. You don't want to meet Him. If you don't have Christ, I don't. The only reason it's a joy for any of us in this room is because we know that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been draped over us and we have been justified by grace through faith in Christ. And that's because God the Father, when Jesus died on the cross, he raised him up and he said, you know what? This raising up my son is proof to you that I credit, I impute all of my son's righteous deeds and sinless acts to you and now you are declared righteous you are righteous and it's backed up the saving faith is backed up by a life that's evidencing true saving faith with its works so please note that these are good works that evidence true saving faith these aren't good works that save you good works can never save you good works always do flow out from though true saving faith and so i think we need to look and examine and Say, God, do, am I evidencing the fact that I'm truly a Christian? Do I see a difference? Do my mom and dad see a difference in me that I'm truly born again and a child of God now? Because if there is, you should start seeing some of these good works. And it's simple. <laughs> Giving a drink to your, one of your siblings, that's... But that's what the Holy Spirit does. You're, you're a new man. You're a new young woman. You're, you're different. You're totally born again. And you just want to live for Christ. And it's like, hey, I don't want to just give one cup of cold water... I want to, like Zacchaeus, I want to go out and I just want to give back and pay everybody fourfold because this great Savior has loved me and died for me. That's the heart of a true Christian. Amen? And may we have that. The fourth and final point quickly is eternal punishment and eternal life. This is signified in the phrase, Come, you were blessed by my Father, contrasted with verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared. For the devil and his angels. I'm going to look first at eternal punishment. You see again in verse 46. These unrighteous. These who have not treated Jesus with any good works. Have not responded to Jesus in repentance and faith. Have remained in their unbelief. Who have rejected Christ. It says and these will go away into eternal punishment. We've got to let that sit for a second. These will go away. They will 
go away into eternal punishment. There is a great move amongst many professing Christians to try to just dull the edge of the sharpness of God's sword of judgment and say, eternal punishment? Nah, that's not really true. You live for a certain amount of time and you receive God's wrath, but then you are annihilated. You cease to exist. Brothers and sisters, remember Matthew 25, if anybody ever says that to you. Because the comparison of eternal life in heaven and eternal punishment in hell are side by side for a reason here. Jesus, on the week he's about to die, do you think this is important? Is driving home not some moral lesson. He is driving home the reality of eternal judgment. And we have got to import this into our souls and see the urgency that this is meant to produce in us. It's meant to infuse us by the power of the Holy Spirit with an eternal mindset so that we live all out for Christ. And it's also meant to cause us, like Charles Spurgeon said, to do not allow a single view of punishment in hell that is light to exist. Shun all views that would seem to make the eternal punishment of hell less horrible than it is. R.L. Scarborough, the great evangelist, said that if we could get a five-minute glimpse into hell, it would change our evangelism for a lifetime. If we could hear the groans, we could hear the screams. Brothers and sisters, it will never come to an end. Every single person that's out here in Berks County living their life thinking they're going to be good before God on the day of judgment, they don't know what we know. And we've got to tell them, we've got to go out, we've got to do everything we can to preach Christ. And we we trust in the sovereignty of God and His sovereignty and all this, but we also embrace the urgency of the plight of the damned. And we do all we can to preach the gospel to them with compassion and love and no self-righteousness, but with an urgency fitting this passage by the grace of God. Amen. And finally, the righteous will go into eternal life. And I just simply want to say, I don't know whatever wedding was the most exciting wedding you've ever been to or that you ever anticipated going to. But man, you look forward to it and you get that date on the calendar and you just can't wait to be there. What in the world is the marriage supper of the Lamb for the great majestic God our Father lavishing a celebration upon Jesus Christ, His Son, for all that He's done and His bride getting ushered into that kingdom? How lavish and glorious is the kingdom of heaven? going to be. Shannon and I were talking about this last night. One second of it is going to make everything we've endured here worth it. Hang on. Hang in there. Brothers and sisters in the great tribulation along with me, never forget, and I close with this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but as it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard. Nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared 
for those who love Him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we just want to thank You so much for laying down Your life on the cross when we think of Your just judgments and the the terrible judgments, God, in relation to just the awesomeness of Your wrath. We remember that You, great judge, this very week that you're saying these words are going to suffer yourself to be hung up on the cross and that's what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks and Lord, touch us with the depths of your love that you would have done this for wretched sinners like us. We did not deserve to have you come and be our sin bearer and to take the wrath that we deserve to save us from the wrath that we deserve. Oh, but Jesus, we're so grateful for it. And God, I pray for any unbeliever that they would turn from you and have life this morning. They would trust in you with all their hearts and repent of their sins and turn away from their life of sin to follow Jesus this morning and that they would be saved. But God, also for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would have mercy on them right now. Help them to have fresh confidence to come before the throne of grace, to find mercy and grace in their time of current need and also fill their hearts with hope that as they look ahead to the future, that they would remember that the future is bright. Their future is going to hear the words. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And how glorious is it going to be, Lord, that you say elsewhere that no eye has seen or ear heard nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. God, heaven's going to be awesome. Help us all to take great comfort in that truth and to cling to You all the more closely and to rest in Your grace all the more fully, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Awesome God, awesome Savior.